Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV. Best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Jerislein from Outdoor News. Apologies in advance. If you listen to the news segment there, you heard about how influenza A is hitting people hard, and I am exhibit A. I'm, I'm getting hit pretty hard by this, uh, but I'm uh, plowing ahead, and I appreciate Jonathan Lowe, producer here this evening, helping me out, as well as everybody else at CCO. Uh, we, we had St. Paul Ice Fishing Show weekend. I did not get there because of how I sound. I didn't want to spread my germs around the River Center. Uh, but we'll have Mark Holston with us toward the end of the show. I think he'll be with us about 5.45 or so. He's from Minfish. He was there all weekend. He'll give us a report. He's also going to talk to us about a fundraising event that Minfish is doing with Toys for Tots. So we'll uh, talk about that a little bit. A couple other guests that we have cooking this week. Paul Radomsky. A fisheries biologist has got a new book called Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. And we will talk to Paul about his new book and the uh, great research he put into that. If you're into walleyes, you're going to want to hear that interview. Dale Gentry, he is the Minnesota Conservation Director for Audubon. I think he oversees several states, Iowa and Missouri, if memory serves. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that state of the birds that came out here a month or so ago. We didn't talk about that on WCCO. But uh, that's something that's of interest to waterfowlers, uh, you know, waterfowl hunters, as well as, uh, you know, general bird watchers, songbird watchers, those folks. Uh, it was all included in that report, and I think it's worth uh, chatting about here for a few minutes. A quick book, look back at the headlines of the week that uh, that passed. I guess the big one we can't ignore is what happened on Red Lake on Monday, I believe, they they uh, there was a big rescue. It was all over. I mean, this headline was like national, maybe even international, the rescue of 200 ice anglers on Red Lake. And I must admit, I feel, you know, a little responsible. We talked even on this show last week about how uh, there, were eight inches, there was eight inches of ice on Red Lake. Uh, it's one of those first lakes to freeze. Uh, we, we did stress safety out there, but it's a great walleye lake, and a lot of people were out there fishing. I, you know, I think it's important to point out if, if you went just by the headlines that you saw uh, about the rescue, you might have kind of envisioned, you know, that scene from Apocalypse Now, you know, with the, with the helicopters swarm, swarming in and, you know, Ride of the Valkyries playing in the background. Uh, it, it wasn't quite like that. I mean, there was, it was about a 30 foot gap, uh, you, know, you know, where this, this ice flow kind of separated. They put a wooden bridge out and everybody walked back. Um, and, and that is not by any means to minimize the efforts of emergency response folks that got involved, Beltrami County especially. You know, hats off to all those folks who worked really hard to make sure, sure those people were safe. But if you drilled into the stories a little bit, I, I think the, the most dramatic part of it about it for some people is they were mad they had to leave the ice because the, the, the bite was so good. Uh, the walleye bite was up there. It was my understanding they were going to close, you know, most of those, um, Resorts up there that uh, that were you know had access to the lake were going to kind of shut things down, be cool through the remainder of the work week, and I'm not I haven't checked, but I wouldn't be surprised if they reopened here this week that uh, you know everything froze back up. There's probably ten plus inches of ice uh, across a lot of Red Lake now, so that's good news. Um, and you know, bottom line, thank you to all the emergency response people who turned out, and I'm glad that no one was hurt. There were no injuries in that situation. The other big story. 
Well, it's not necessarily a big story, but it's something I've kind of been updating listeners on the past couple weeks is the status of the deer hunting season. The uh, 3B season wrapped up a week ago today. The muzzleloader season is still going, I believe, through next weekend. Uh, so the bulk of the deer that are going to you know, end up in freezers in Minnesota have already been taken the, this this year. There's still some late archery season also. Uh, but the, in the muzzleloader, muzzleloader hunting, of course, they take a, take a few deer. Uh, the 3B hunt was up a little bit. Overall harvest remains down for the year. Uh, I just checked it, and as of 12-1 several days ago, the harvest was at 158,000 deer for the year. Uh, if you recall, we've talked about that a little bit on air. And we, you know, prior to the season, we thought maybe the state had a shot at hitting 200,000. Uh, that's clearly not going to happen. My guess is, yeah, maybe 165, 170 tops by the end of the year. Uh, if, if the if the late archers and the muzzleloaders have some success out there, so we will definitely keep tabs on that. I wanted to have Pat Durkin with us this week. Pat is a contributor to Wisconsin Outdoor News, one of the best outdoor writers in the country. Outdoor reporters just a, does great work over there in Wisconsin. I wanted to talk to him about some things cooking in the Badger State. Number of headlines emerging from there since the election. Uh, their uh, DNR secretary, which is the equivalent of our DNR commissioner, Preston Cole, announced that he is going to be leaving that job in the second term of the Evers administration. So we didn't get to that. Also, I believe their harvest, deer harvest, is up a little bit in Wisconsin, despite the uh, the number of hunters being down a little bit. And I, I wanted to pick Pat's brain on that. We're going to get him on in a couple weeks, but uh, I just didn't feel like I was up for that live interview with Pat this week, given how I sound. Uh, stay tuned when we're done. Uh, 60 Minutes will be up at 6 o'clock. And then uh, Steel Talking is still happening, even though Gerilyn Steele is not around. It's my understanding that uh, Shaletta Brundage is going to be filling in for Gerilyn Steele this week. So a lot cooking on WCCO Radio this evening. We are going to break. We will be back with my interview with Paul Radomsky. Then we'll have another interview with Dale Gentry. And then we'll be back. I will have a live interview with Mark Holson from Minfish. We'll talk about that St. Paul Ice Fishing Show. And we'll also uh, talk about what Minfish has got cooking for this holiday season with its Toys for Tots campaign. So don't go away. More WCCO Outdoors coming at you after these messages. Hey, now, as promised, going to check in with Paul Radomsky. Paul is a fisheries research biologist, and he's got a new book out called Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. Uh, hey, everybody knows that the walleye is our state fish, and Paul knows enough about uh, this species to... Spend some time writing a book about them. Paul Radomsky joins us now. Paul, how are you doing? Very well. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for uh, jumping in on the conversation. So, Paul, you got a book here. It's like 334 pages about walleyes, published by our very own University of Minnesota Press. Uh, you were telling me a little off air. It was maybe a little longer than they <laughs> than they wanted, that the publisher first uh, expected. How were you able to squeeze uh, more than 300 pages out talking about uh, a fish, even though it is our highly regarded walleye? Oh, I could have gone longer. I mean, there's just so much more to say about walleye. I mean, I talk about, you know, what they are, where they exist, you know, how people have come to depend on them. And then I got going and it's like really hard to stop. I, I uh, interviewed a bunch of people on three different fisheries and I go, oh, it'd be nice to interview some more, some more uh, biologists, some more anglers, um, because I found that really fun. You must enjoy that well as well, right? You're, you call people, you interview people. You know, as a biologist, I don't do that very often. And it's like, wow, this is kind of a fun activity, right? You just get to listen to some great things people have to say. 
Yeah, well, you actually hit on something. That is one reason I probably became a journalist, because it, it really is different every day. You learn so much. You hear so many new things. You get to interact with so many cool people. So, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're on to something. Tell us about the title. You called it A Fish of the Dark. What does that mean? I know what you're driving at, but uh, but why do we consider the walleye a fish of the twilight? And and actually, isn't isn't that tied into its very name? Well, exactly. A fish's name is actually goes back to an old Viking name about a beam or film over the eye. The walleye have a back of the eye reflector that allows them to see in the waning light. So they spend uh, their predatory time fishing on, say, perch that don't have that back of the eye reflector. So it, they're very well adapted to the edges, you know, the dark areas, uh, twilight or the waning light. And that's how they, that's how they've survived is feeding in those, in those twilight areas, protected from say their predators that might eat them. So what species are we talking about as predators, pike and muskies? Mostly? Yeah, pike and muskie, they don't have that. The perch don't have it. The sagra have it, but it's, uh, and it's more advanced than the walleye's reflector. So they can see even in dimmer light. So it's kind of interesting, the, you know, the one adaptation of a fish and how that influences their life history, their behavior, how people fish for them, right? Right. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, that's why I, I start with a book on, on the eye, just because it's so unique and so interesting. Well, walleyes are a predator fish, and specific to that eye and how it relates to fishing, that's why sometimes the prime hours for fishing for walleyes are very early in the morning, dawn or dusk, or sometimes in, in lakes or waterways that have a lot of, maybe it's not real clear water, right? You can fish for them during the daytime, but it's probably not in the clearest water you're going to find. Exactly. I mean, you fish some really dark water, and boy, after after sunset, it's hard to catch some of those fish, right? So it's it's uh, really dependent upon the water clarity, uh, its turbidity, as far as when they're the most active. I interviewed you earlier this summer, and we talked a little bit about, you know, are there any misconceptions about walleyes? And you mentioned stocking, and I hope you're comfortable talking about that right now, Paul. Many states do a lot of stocking of walleye. And yet the majority of walleyes that we catch, probably not just in Minnesota, but around the country are naturally reared fish, correct? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, Minnesota is the largest walleye stocker in the world. We have great experience and understanding of how and where to do it, but our efforts pale in comparison to what nature produces, right? 85% of what anglers catch in Minnesota is free range, all natural, no human hands have touched, you know, natural reproductive walleye. And it's the 15% that we spend $4 million that results in $8 stocked walleye caught, you know, that uh, we put our effort to in Minnesota. So yeah, it's, you know, it's a big thing. You know, I, I call it people are intoxicated with the idea of stocking. And I think it's, you know, people th- jump to that as the first solution to whenever there's a potential problem or a perceived problem. You know, they can't catch fish, so they're going to blame, you know, the DNR or somebody else, right? A lot of times anglers say, well, it can't hurt if you stock it. But but yeah, it actually would. <laughs> you know, each lake has a carrying capacity. You know, this is the law of diminishing returns, right? Mm-hmm. So if the lake's at its carrying capacity, you're just wasting more fish if you're dumping more into it. And then Secondly, and this is this is a, a conversation I had with Pete Jacobson. He reminded me that if you're stocking on top of natural reproducing walleye, 
you can actually suppress the walleye population and end up with less walleye in the lake. That is, the stocking of walleye actually damaged the walleye population. So when people say, well, it can't hurt, well, yeah, yeah, it can. And we have evidence to show that it can. In areas with very robust, naturally producing walleye populations. Exactly. Interesting. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors, and we're chatting with Paul Radomsky, a fisheries research biologist who has written a new book called Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. It came out in September, and we're interviewing Paul right now about some of the contents of his fine book. Paul, one other quick stocking question. Are walleyes the most stocked species in the world, or does the rainbow trout, is it still the top species in that regard? Yeah, in North America, walleye is the most stocked fish in numbers. But if you go by pounds, then it's um, rainbow trout. That's a whole different fish and a whole different story, but it, but it's kind of a fun one. I, I've, I've read some interesting books about rainbow trout and how, I mean, it's a species that was found in a relatively small part of, you know, West Slope, uh, you know, of the Pacific Northwest. And now it's stocked all over the world. Uh, oh, Franken, yeah. Frankenfish in, in, in some ways, but let's, let's, let's stick to walleyes. Are there, what's the future for our state fish? Paul, are you, are you all worried about the, you know, how walleyes are going to cope with a changing climate and, and the, changing water quality? Well, certainly, you know, there's going to be winners and losers with pollution and with uh, the changing climate. And and walleye um, are, of course, are going to do good in the short term. I don't think there's any any concern. It's it's the long term. As you look out, you go, well, we're going to start seeing the walleye range shift further north. And uh, the centrarchids, that is the bass and panfish, they're going to be, be moving north and they'll outcompete walleye in some of our lakes in Minnesota. And in Wisconsin notice, is noticing that right now, that some of their walleye lakes, you know, bass are becoming more common and that those fish communities are actually shifting and right before our eyes. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't worry about them now, but if you're worried about your grandchildren's or your great-grandchildren fishing walleye, yeah, you might have to move further north to get some really good walleye fishing. Interesting. In, in the book, you uh, highlighted three very remarkable and well-known walleye fisheries. You kind of scrutinized them and talked about their management structure. You picked Winnebago in Wisconsin, Malak here in Minnesota, and then Red Lake. You, you were telling me back in April when we talked about the book, I got an advanced copy, I enjoyed reading it then, that uh, you wished you could have written a longer book and included some other walleye fisheries in it. I, now that I got you, I want to put you on the spot. What what are some of the other walleye fisheries you would have liked to maybe uh, scrutinized a bit in, in this book? Uh, I think uh, some of the, like Lake of the Woods, some other local, Rainy, of course, was was is one of my favorites. Um, we would like to have done that because that has an interesting history too. Both Lake of the Woods and Rainy have, you know, a commercial history, which is kind of interesting to talk about. And then some of the, you know, Northwest Ontario lakes, some of those are really fascinating. And then I think I've, I've mentioned that Lake Erie would be interesting because of, of all the science that's occurring in that fishery. I think the reader would get a great kick about learning about some of the science, some of really state of the art science that they've been doing in Lake Erie. And it's really fascinating. You mentioned Lake of the Woods. I've that's a lake I as long as I've been in Minnesota, I hadn't fished a lot until about six, seven years ago, and I've been up there quite a bit since. And what a remarkable body of water that is. And you just got so many rivers dumping into it, so many systems converging at once. It just can't help but be an incredible place to grow walleyes. Yeah, and it's big. So the south looks a lot different than the north and different habitats. Yeah, and it is a it is a very productive walleye fishery. 
In your book, Paul, you write, and I think this is something that anybody out there who likes fishing should think about and should understand, walleye waters exist between the warm, productive bass lakes and the cold, low, productive lake trout lakes. That's a good rule of thumb. If someone's listening out there and they want to know where to find walleyes, that's a good place to start. Right, right. If it's full of vegetation, you know, you might want to fish for bass, right? I mean, fish where walleye are. That's one of the lessons I, I learned very young. Fish where the walleye are. And that's, is that one reason you chose Winnebago? Was that like a home lake for you or a lake that you spent some time on as a, yeah, when you were younger? You know, yeah, when I was younger. I, most of my fishing when I was younger was actually on the, on the Wisconsin River, but it was close enough by that it would be an occasional place that we go to. That brings up another point. Walleyes are, I mean, historically kind of a riverine species. Now we think about lakes, but historically, weren't they a dominant river species? Yeah, yeah. They actually evolved for, for the river situation. Like uh, even on on lakes now, they have to find clear, shallow substrate to lay their eggs on because they they have they have high oxygen requirements, so they can't stand <laughs> uh, low oxygen conditions. So that's because they evolved in rivers where you have riffles that uh, had well oxygenated cobble or gravel substrates, and that's what they seek out on on lakes. So yeah, they're, they're, that's where they evolved first. Well, I got to wrap it up here, Paul, but hey, let's just celebrate walleyes, right? You got a great book here talking about our state fish, and uh, there's going to be a lot of good fishing for walleyes here this winter and and looking into 2023. I hope you agree. Oh, yeah. Get out and fish. That's what I always say. Get out and fish. And when you're on the ice house and perhaps the walleyes aren't biting at that moment, bring a copy of Paul Radomski's new book, Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. Tis the holiday season. Great time to pick up a new book for a loved one in your life, and this is a good one. Paul, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Yeah, Paul Radomsky, a fisheries research biologist who's got a new book out called Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. Don't go away. We'll have more of the broadcast after these messages. Hey, I'd like to jump into a topic now that came up last month uh, that we haven't had time on the broadcast yet to discuss. It's the State of the Birds report that uh, had some good news and had some bad news. Uh, I think this is a subject that affects you know anybody who enjoys the outdoors, not just hunters, not just bird watchers, but a lot of folks in between. Everybody's interested in the avian world. Here to talk about that report is Dale Gentry. Dale is the conservation director for Audubon, uh, serving the uh, the region of Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri. Dale, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the broadcast. Sure. Thanks. Happy to be here. Dale, tell us a little bit about yourself, about Audubon. Uh, I think a lot of folks are familiar with the organization, but it's involved in a lot of different facets of conservation, isn't it? We are, yeah. Audubon is an organization that, of course, is focused on birds. That's probably what we're most known for. And we do on-the-ground conservation work. We do a lot of science. We have a policy team. Uh, we want to help people see that what's good for birds is good for us. And so, you know, t- time and effort put into bird conservation is going to serve not only them, but us as well. Well, let's jump into the State of the Birds report. First off, Dale, I- I've read several news stories about it, and I- I'm not completely clear who put this together. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? Was it the uh, American Bird Conservancy? Was it Audubon? Was it a consortium of groups? How would you describe it? Yeah, it- it's a consortium. So it comes out of a group called NABCI, which stands for North American Bird Conservation Initiative, which is a big group of policy groups, NGOs. There's no no one organization that's singly responsible. Everybody's got kind of a, some some role in it. Well, let's talk about some of the conclusions from the report. And I tend to be one of those guys that wants to get the 
the bad news out of the way first. <laughs> uh, so, so let's talk about that. There's not a lot of good news here for most species of birds, right? Most species right. in North America are declining, right? Yeah, that's right. That's the, the summary is that is that birds in general are, are declining. This is uh, a report that that gives some more detail on on a, on a really a landmark report that came out in 2019 that showed that since 1970, North America has lost about th- three billion birds. Um, that's just a sign if we think of birds as indicators of environmental quality. That not only people that are just concerned about birds, but those that are that are interested in, in the environmental well-being overall, that that things are not well. And so this gave us more detail about some species, uh, you know, which species are, are really declining faster and are in need of more attention. But as you said, most of it's bad news, but there are some, some little uh, hints at, at some re- reason for optimism as well. A grassland birds showing the biggest decrease, right? Down 34%. And, you know, as someone who watches oh, a lot of grassland conservation work, especially conservation reserve program, I guess I can't say I find that too surprising, uh, disappointing, but not surprising. Uh, what's, what's your take? Yeah, no, I think that you're right. I mean, it's nobody's terribly surprised that grassland birds are not thriving. Uh, unfortunately, what what land is great uh, habitat for them is is often great for agricultural land as well. And you know, we just haven't done a great job of making sure that while we're producing food and supporting farmers and agriculture, that we're also leaving suitable prairie and, and, and native grassland habitat for for birds and all the other animals that are out there needing it as well. This might seem to be a question I should ask at the end, but it, it's it's gnawing at me right now. This <laughs> focused on North America, correct? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, yep. is really linked to South America with with, migra- Absolutely. Yeah, with right. migration. Right? So we're, we're yep. probably kind of talking Western Hemisphere Western a little Hemisphere, bit. Yeah. If you looked at birds worldwide, would it be as bad? Would it be even worse? A- any idea? Can you speak to that? I can't speak to that with quite as much authority, but I think it would be it would be very similar. I mean, mm-hmm. we see the same pressures everywhere where habitat loss is happening, you know, at concerning rates because because of conversion for agriculture, <clears throat> because of conversion for for development, because of uh, of what we sometimes call habitat degradation. It's still habitat, but it's not as high a quality because of invasive species or fragmentation or, or maybe changes in, in weather patterns and climate. So, yeah, you know, worldwide, we're seeing declines. Regionally, there are, there are things that really flare up and get our attention, but we don't really see any region of the world that, that's um, outside of that, that general pattern of sort of bad news. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. We are chatting with Dale Gentry. He is the conservation director for Audubon. He oversees Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri. And we're chatting about the State of the Birds report that came out a month ago. So, I mean, going from bottom to top here. So grassland birds showed the most decrease, then shorebirds down 33%, sea ducks 30%, eastern forest birds down 27%. Working our way up, we get... Above negative range here, we get into water birds up 18%, dabbling and diving ducks up 34%, geese and swans up a thousand percent. Right. A little bit of positivity there. What's, what's going on with, with waterfowl especially? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, a, a lot of that I think is just the, the outcomes of, of focused conservation efforts. So, uh, thanks to group like Ducks Unlimited supported by, you know, Audubon and many other partners across the, the upper Midwest, the prairie pothole regions have improved. They're not thriving. There's still a lot of loss there, but the works to, 
the efforts to improve habitat for breeding ducks has worked. And when you look at things like like geese and swans, no one's going to be surprised that Canada geese populations are growing. And, right. and likewise, you know, swans, especially uh, trumpeter swans, were, were down so low, the only direction they could go was up. And so since we've had some good, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. good protections for trumpeter swans, their populations are really re- re- rebounding. And it's it's nice to see that, that they're no longer a surprise to see. It's, it's a delight that trumpeter swans are a more part of our regular uh, landscape. I don't know if you're a hunter, Dale. You and I didn't talk about this off air, but is there a little bit of, you know, when humans place a value on some of these critters, right, and people want them, there's incentive to increase their populations and invest in their habitat a little bit. I mean, that's that's not a new narrative. That's something hunters yeah. have been saying for a long time. As a pure birder kind of guy, what, what, what do you make of that? And, and I mean, how do you apply that template to eastern bluebirds or, or something else that obviously has no hunting value or, or food value? We're delighted uh, that game species are, are healthy. We, we want them to be healthy. Glad that, that ducks and geese and waterfowl and pheasants uh, get, get attention. Uh, and I think, you know, as Audubon, we, we just want to make sure that non-game species are also being accounted for in our conservation plans, not just so that we have them, but also uh, because we want people to recognize that what is good for birds, uh, which is, you know, just good habitat, is going to be good for game species, and it's going to be good for humans as well. And so, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, opportunities to have sort of win-win outcomes by conserving uh, non-game birds, by conserving game birds, it's going to be good for, for human communities overall. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we were really worried about waterfowl populations. I mean, you go back to the 70s and 80s when we saw waterfowl populations declining and there was a lot of efforts to address what's going on, to address poaching. And it seems like we, you know, we helped curb that. So, you know, that's the positive news is we can take action and we can turn this around. We've got a bit of a template for it. And and you're right, there's areas where it overlaps, where where non-game and game bird populations overlap and, and everybody wins. And, and that's yep. that's a good place to start. The report mentioned these tipping point bird species. Tell us about those and what, what do we do to turn that around? Yeah, the tipping point list is a group of 70 birds who have lost uh, at least half of their population in the last 50 years and are expected to lose another half. Uh, and so the, these are these are species that we think are, are at real risk for, uh, you know, a, f- a future endangered status. And in reality, we, we don't want birds on the endangered species list. Those are the fires that need to be put out urgently. It, it's just not uh, healthy to let species get to that point before we start giving them attention. So we're wanting to be a little bit more proactive with conservation. A lot of these birds, you know, they're not candidates for endangered status yet, but we fear that they will be in the future. And so these are the, the habitats that these birds need are, are the places where we really need to focus our conservation efforts. You know, the last main question I might ask for someone out there listening who's not an outdoors person, you know, it's blunt, but why should people care about rufous hummingbirds or black-footed albatrosses? Well, you know, how do you address that when you, you bump into someone who's kind of uh, kind of blunt? It's <laughs> a no, nice way of putting it about that. No, I, th- I think that's a great question. You know, I, I used to teach uh, conservation biology at a university level and uh, about a third of that class is trying to tease out the ethics for, for why we, why we care about conservation at all, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. there's, there's always that self-preservation component, but beyond that, like you said, if, if, if there are no Rufus hummingbirds, will, will that really affect me? 
and I, there are a couple of ways to approach that. And, and this is going to go beyond science because it's, it's ethics and it's, and it's morals and values. And there's reason to believe that, that taking care of bird communities will be good for us as well. It's going to, because they require clean water and they require clean air and they re, they benefit from healthy habitat. And we enjoy those places as well for recreation and other things that we do in the outdoors. But there's also, you know, some, some, many people think there's some ethical component that, that humans are somehow, uh, it would be irresponsible of us to, to willingly cause species to go extinct if we can do otherwise. And so that's, that's a kind of a complex issue. That's going to get into all different aspects of, of religion and, and morality. But I really think that most humans do feel some, some compulsion to care for other beings other than just themselves. And so, uh, you know, knowledge that those populations are struggling inspires many people to act. You know, I think modern Americans were really removed from, from tragic history uh, yeah. that occurred in the late, what, 19th century, when, where we almost lost the buffalo, and we did lose the passenger pigeon, uh, a species that I think was regarded as the, like, the most populous creature in North America? Probably, yes, yeah, possibly the world. Damn. Yeah, and there's a long list of other North American birds that have gone extinct. The, you know, we used to have a native parakeet, the Carolina parakeet, right. that was found yeah. throughout the southeastern United States. Labrador duck, great auk, seaside sparrow. It's a pretty long list. Ivory-billed woodpecker. Yeah. Ivory-billed woodpecker, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, we don't want to add to that list. Uh, no, and and we, we can do something to prevent um, adding more birds to that list, and it's just a willingness to, to, to invest in it and to, and to make it a priority. Well, if folks want to see this report, it's fairly easy. You just go to stateofthebirds.org, and you can find uh, the complete report and all sorts of information on it. It's very, uh, very complete. Uh, Thank you, Dale, for spending some time with me here today. Sure. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. And uh, audubon.org, if folks want to see more uh, about your organization, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. There you go. Dale Gentry from Audubon. Let's get in a break. We'll have more of the broadcast after these messages. Hey everybody, welcome back. Final segment of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline. Uh, a couple quick notes. Uh, stay tuned for 60 minutes when we are wrapped up. They'll be, uh, that'll be broadcasted next. And I, I wanted to point out Paul Radomsky's book, uh, Walleyes, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. We interviewed Paul earlier in the show. That's a U of M Press, University of Minnesota Press book, uh, if you're looking to uh, track that down. Hey, I want to check in now with a longtime friend, former DNR commissioner. He's now the director of MinFish, an important fishing nonprofit here in Minnesota, Mr. Mark Holston. Mark, are you with me? I am. Well, thank you for uh, for joining the broadcast, Mark. You're coming off the big weekend at the St. Paul Ice Fishing Show. Uh, given how, how I sound and how I felt this weekend, I did not get there, which really, really upsets me because i love that show it's a great show i saw some social media posts it looks like it it had some big crowds and uh, everybody had a good time you know i gotta tell you i haven't been to the ice show myself personally in the last couple years this year oh my god it was amazing the volume of people that were coming through there i met people from maine i met people from colorado who flew in just to go to the ice show plus people from north dakota wisconsin iowa who drove in just to go to the ice show. It's a great I, event. I, gotta yeah. tell you, I, I was totally blown back. And working the Minfish booth, the volume of people that came by and the positive interaction we had with people, they're excited to get out. 
get out on that ice and get out on that uh, and, and chase those fish. So, Mark, we, we just got a few minutes here, and I want to talk about what Minfish has got going uh, with this Toys for Tots campaign. In 60 seconds, can you tell us again, uh, we've talked about before, who is Minfish and, and uh, why should Minnesota anglers be interested in Minfish? Minfish is an advocacy group that started four years ago trying to bring a, bring a voice to the angler, to the Minnesota legislature. We're out there advocating for the rebuilding of our fish hatcheries that support stocking and stocking into the future and public water accesses to make sure that we can access our lakes and our rivers, shore fishing and fishing pier opportunities. That's what we're doing. I wish we had more time to talk about the legislative session and the election that just went down and what that means for minfish and, and outdoor policy making overall. We'll get you back on toward the end of the year, maybe when the session kicks off. For now, though, let's talk about this Toys for Tots campaign that Minfish has going. It's a great thing. We're looking for donations from the general public to help put fishing rods in the hands of kids. Tell us a little bit about that, Mark. You know, we decided to join into the Toys for Tots campaign, and we're doing, we donated Saturday 1,000 rods to Toys for Tots that came from from people volunteering, uh, 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 sponsoring kids, and so what we're we've been about sponsoring kids, putting these rods into the hands, giving the gift of fishing into the hands of kids. And I got to tell you, this weekend, the volume of people when that came by our booth and they talked, they were throwing ones, they were throwing fives, they were throwing tens and twenties into the pot. We sold over 160 sponsorships of, of rods just this weekend through just ones and fives and tens. It was incredible. And when we talked about it, people just lit up and said, I want to help kids. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to, through Toys for Tots, $15 puts a rod in the hand of every child that, that we can this, this Christmas season. Mark, we're getting out of time here, but real quick, if folks want to know how they can participate in this program, maybe they didn't get to the show, what, what can they do? How can they make a donation? You know, the easiest way for them to do it is go to min-fish.com, go to our website, look for the Toys for Tot logo, hit that, and they can go right into PayPal, uh, PayPal donation system and uh, donate to Toys for Tots, give the gift of fishing, and a rod will be given to a kid this Christmas season. That website, one more time, was mn-fish.com, correct? That is correct. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks for all you do. You've been a big part of the Minnesota conservation scene for decades. Uh, It's it's fun to see you in this new role. And uh, I'm going to let you go. I hope you uh, didn't work too hard. I hope you're able to... uh, uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday night after a, a hard a hard weekend of work at the St. Paul Ice Fishing Show. You know, Rob, I'm still coming off the, the enjoyment of interacting with all those anglers and the enjoyment that they had at the ice show this year. Very cool, very cool. Mark, thanks a lot. Have a good evening and a great week ahead. Thanks. Good night. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Holston, he's the executive director of Minfish, a great organization, important organization if you're interested in fishing in Minnesota, which I would like to thank most of the listeners of this show. Uh, 
qualify as interested in. Uh, again, go to mn-fish.com if you're interested in what they've got cooking. Well, thank you, everybody, for putting up with me this week. I apologize. I got this bad influenza bug. I'm hoping this time next week I'm going to be back to 100%. Thank you, Jonathan Lowe, who helped me out here a lot again this week, and everybody at WCCO and all the great listeners. Everybody have a great week out of doors. Rob Drewstein signing off for WCCO Outdoors. <laughs>